Hey everyone, this is Becoming a Bible Nerd. I'm Carrie Hunt, and I'm so glad that you are joining us. We believe this ancient Eastern text was never meant to study alone, so we choose to do it in community. We will read one book a semester, one chapter a week, and really dig in to understand the context and culture that the book was written in so that we can better understand how to apply what God was saying to our lives. Our goal is to equip you and your community to fall more in love with Jesus because you have fallen in love with his word. This season, we are going through the book of Romans, and today's episode is Romans chapter 1, Grace and Faith. So before we get started, we have to remember that last week we talked about the reason why Paul or one of the contributing factors, what was going on in the church in Rome and why Paul was writing. And really, it was um, there was some conflict going on. The, the Jewish community was um, exiled for a season, but they're allowed to return back to Rome. And while they were gone, the, the church in Rome had continued to grow. And so you have the Gentile um, converts and believers that had kind of started taking control while the Jewish people weren't there. And in the meantime, the church was growing and expanding. So you have three different groups, really. And Paul is going to address these three different groups in the first three chapters. So we have to understand this, and that's going to help us kind of understand why Paul is saying some of the things he's saying, and then why he switches gears, and it's almost like he's talking to a whole different audience. Well, he is. So we have the new Gentile converts that are fresh from the pagan temple. That is who he addresses first, and that's who we will talk about today. And then Starting in chapter 2 through 3, he addresses the rooted Gentile converts that have been discipled and transformed and perhaps find that they are holier than these pagan new pagan converts. And then he addresses the Jewish believers who think that they're more holy than the Gentiles. And he's saying that we all fall short. The whole theme of Romans, and many of us grew up memorizing the Romans road, and in light of what we had memorized as children, this really is going to resonate and 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 be more clear that Paul is saying we all have fallen short. Every one of us is in need of a savior. We all have to repent of our sinful ways and apart from the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we are nothing. But through him, we are co-heirs with Jesus in the kingdom of God. So it's all very exciting. But to get to the exciting stuff, we have to recognize our flawed, sinful condition. And Paul is going to address that. But we're going to start from the beginning. Paul starts off like he always does, and he introduces himself. And this is actually the longest salutation in all of his letters. And um, in Paul fashion, he immediately comes in. Because remember, this church doesn't know him. They haven't met him. And so you have to present credentials if you're going to go in and write a letter. And in the letter, there's going to be some correction. And so you have to give um, clarify your authority in that. And so that's what he's doing. But he identifies himself right off the bat as a slave of Christ Jesus. Remember, we said last time in the introduction that slavery is a very common thing in the Roman Empire. And so immediately, um, the people hearing this letter will understand that a bondservant owned nothing and was nothing apart from his master. And that was Paul. what Paul was communicating. It's complete and it's just, it's complete humility. It's beautiful. And um, Paul has this very successful ministry where he is overseeing churches across the known world, but he doesn't see himself as someone great. He sees himself as a slave 
of Jesus Christ saying, I'm nothing apart from him. And I just challenge us all to operate in that humility. He also says that he is called to be an apostle, singled out for God's good news. So right off the bat, he he declares his office of apostleship, that he has the authority to supervise um, and discipline the church. This is his calling. And he is singled out. This is going to be a very familiar word to the Jewish people. It, the word is holy, and they knew that they were to be set apart. And to the Jewish people, and I want us to listen to this and focus on this, even write this down and, and meditate on it. To the Jewish people, they would have automatically understood what being set apart meant. God is calling us to be set apart. And I think we just go, oh, okay, and don't really have a clear um, understanding of what that is. But to a Jewish person, that meant to love what God loves loves and to hate what he hates. In our culture, we tend to treat the Bible as a buffet. We pick and choose the things that we agree with. And there's things in the world that we still love and we're not ready to hate. And so we, we, um, and I'm talking to myself too, we kind of pick and choose what what we want to love and hate. Also in the Jewish mind to be set apart meant to depart from all evil, all evil. Again, not picking and choosing. To cling to good works. Walk no more in our stubborn, evil evil ways. And lastly, to be separated from all perverse men. Now, I did want to elaborate on that because there has been lots of ways that people have tried to walk that out. God is not calling us to be separated completely um, from society. We absolutely see the perfect model in Jesus Christ who ate with sinners, but every one of them left transformed um, after being in his presence. He's just saying um, to live your life, um, your, your daily life, you're not entering into their world and partaking in the things that they are partaking in, but we definitely have to live amongst um, sinful people and we want to them to have access into our lives so that they can see the goodness of God, see how we're set apart, not because we want our names elevated, but we want him. We want our light to shine for him and if we do this correctly, people are attracted <laughs> to the gospel. They're attracted to Jesus. Okay, the last thing, he was we are singled out for God's good news. Um, some of you might have had a chance to watch the, the teaching that I did on Mark. This gospel, this word good news, is was the word gospel, which was a very familiar and used word in this society. In fact, Caesar, who um, really established the Roman Empire, he had his own gospel, and it was for the salvation of man. Mankind. That meant basically it was the word euangelion. And in a modern translation, it meant there's a new king in town and the world is going to be forever different. Now in Caesar's uh, world, that, um, that peace that he promised came by sword. And there was a lot of chaos and confusion wrapped up in his kingdom. But the kingdom of God, um, where there is the true everlasting good news. Um, it comes with forgiveness and peace and love and servant leaders and the poor are cared for and salvation is eternal. So then he goes on to um, proclaiming that this promise of this savior uh, was promised long ago through the prophets. What he is saying is that this was not an un. un- anticipated gospel, but it had been foretold and promised through the prophets from the beginning of time. Paul is always pointing to the prophets, and this shows that Christianity is Jewish, that this came out of the Jewish faith, and this had been 
part of their faith long before Christ ever was even born. And then he goes on to say that we receive grace, that's unmerited favor, um, and it comes through the obedience of faith to all nations. This obedience of faith, grace and faith are the themes of this chapter. And faith in the Jewish mind is always associated with actions that when you truly have a faith in believing in something, there will be actions and fruit that are displayed as a result. Remember, we know the, the scripture, faith without works is dead. So for faith to be alive, there has to be evidence and it's a, visual, a visible reaction. There should be a visible reaction and fruit should be produced. And so uh, that is part of our job as Christians is to live out our faith and people should see fruit and they should actually be able to tangibly see the work of God in our lives. This letter is to all of Rome. Remember, Paul is all about breaking down dividing walls. So whether you are Greek or barbarian are Jewish, it is for you. Whether you are a slave or an emperor, it is for you. It is for all of Rome, um, or all that are loved by God, called to be saints. We're all called to be followers and believers of Christ. Um, Paul had a deep desire to visit Rome, and he he really expresses this. He says that he gives thanks uh, to God for them, and this is a common thing throughout all his letters. In fact, in my study group, uh, my friend Julie was saying that out of all the people in the Bible that she reads, she really wants to meet Paul because he is so endearing. In all of his letters, he's just encouraging and he's always thanking God. He's like, she's like, can you imagine if you you ran into a friend and they said, oh my goodness, I've just been thanking God for you and I've just longed to see you again and and, and be in your presence because I'm just so thankful for you. Um, and so that that's a common thing among Paul. And he says that the news of their faith and remember, that is attached to obedience, has been reported all over the world. So he's admonishing them. And then he says, I constantly mention you, asking if it's God's will to see you. And so he's just expressing that in his prayers, he is thanking God. He is asking God, let me get to these people because their faith is something that is heard all over the world. Why does he want to get to them? Well, he says, he wants to impart some spiritual gifts to strengthen them, but he also wants to be mutually encouraged. And that is such a truth for today. This is why we have to be in small groups. This is why we have to study God's word together because we are mutually encouraged by one another's faith. There's something active in that and it encourages us. I know that y'all encourage me when you send me um just messages and emails about what God's doing in your life. I love every single one of those and it encourages me. He goes on to say, I want you to know that I've often planned to come to you in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you. So it's clear that he loves this church. And would we say, could it be um, okay to say that he sees a healthy church here. I want to, to really hit hard on this because we're about to talk about some very hard issues. And that's not Paul coming in and just bashing and tearing apart these people. He's saying, I love you. I thank God for you. You're known throughout the world because of your works, but here are some things we have to address. This is a healthy church, but there's some serious things that need to be addressed. But before he addresses them, he goes into a summary of his theology. He says that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. Um, this is a common 
verse. You know, it's one that I memorized at an early age. I think there's been some songs sung about it, but really taking it slow, it was such a good reminder for me to pause on this because the gospel, the good news about Jesus, I think we don't treat it with the power that it has. So many times we get so afraid to share it. Um, what if I say the wrong things? What if I don't convince this person? And so we don't say anything, but he is saying that it is the power of God to salvation. What that means is we are called to share the good news. And isn't it easy to share good news? That's all we're called to do. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be convincing. We are just to share the good news. And then when we do our part, the Holy Spirit in us is unleashed. And it's like dynamite. The Greek word is dunamis, which is um, synonymous with dynamite. The power of the Holy Spirit is released when we share the gospel and the Holy Spirit does the work. It's like dynamite. It's a force. And it says that it's a force to everyone who believes. And this word believes here is not just like the the demons believe in God. It implies that there's ongoing activity, again, obedience in the person's life. And so I just loved this quote. I posted it on the site last night, but it's from D.L. Moody. And he says, gospel is like, the gospel is like a lion all the person has to do is open the cage and get out of the way. And I want you to remember that, that this doesn't have to be something that is perfect in our lives. We just want to share the goodness of God and his redemptive plan for salvation and how our personal stories about how when we accepted that, how he transformed us, it's exciting. And when we share that, people are changed because of the power of the Holy Spirit that was released. Okay. He goes on to say, for in it, God's righteousness is revealed. His righteousness is everything. And over the past month, my church has done a 21-day fast. And at the beginning of it, God spoke to me a very, another very popular and well-known verse, but it's seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added unto you. And a lot of times we focus on that end. Like, oh, if I seek first the kingdom, then all these things will be added to me. And that's what it is saying. But for, for this season, God was really highlighting, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I, that's what I kept hearing. Seek his righteousness. And I was asking the Holy Spirit, what does this mean? How do we seek your righteousness? And um, really, to, to look at this word righteousness, it's a relational concept. That's how the Jewish people would have known this word. It's a relational concept, the act by which God brings people into right relationship with himself. But we have a part to play in this, in a relationship, right? There's two parts. So he brings us into right relationship with him. And our job is to honor him. And we're going to talk about that and to give gratitude. We're going to talk about that later in this chapter. But it is a two, this takes effort on two parts. But we really got the easy part. We got the easy part. We receive him and then he brings us into right relationship. A quote that I just thought was beautiful and really does a great job of helping us understand this is in one of the commentaries, and I'm sorry that I didn't write down which commentary, but it said, righteousness is when God treats the sinner as if he had never been a sinner at all. It's so beautiful and it's such a gift and it's such grace. Okay, so then we get to the meat of this. And in verse 18, he says, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes and his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. This this um, little section did a lot for me, but we're going to unpack it. First of all, it talks about the wrath of God. I am still wrapping my mind around what that means. But at the very beginning, I just started having to take notes because I understood that I didn't fully understand what this is. So the, the, the first thing I wrote was from the Enduring Word Commentary, David Gusick, who um, it's a free app and you can just download it, and it's fabulous. But he was talking about how this is not human anger. A lot of times when we hear the word wrath, we can have a picture of, of, of the wrath of a human that is um, just, it's sinful in its qualities. Well, this is not human anger, and it's not sinful because God has no sin in him. It's part of God's righteousness. God hates sin and has to deal with it and judge it, and it's his way of cleansing the world. But through looking through different commentaries, I ended up days later, I just kept coming back to this. And I'm talking about this right now because this is part of study, like wrestling with the text and saying, okay, God, I want to understand more about you Um and, and you talk about wrath, and I want to know more about that. And so I'd read a little bit, and I'd go away, and then the next day I'd continue studying, but then I'd go back to wrath. And I ended with putting a question to myself. Could the wrath of God be our freedom to disobey? Now, we're going to move on, but I am going to clarify this later, but we have to cover some more ground before I, I um, circle back to it. But this section that I just read, this is really the part where Paul starts talking to these new converts. They have a Hellenistic worldview, which is this Roman worldview, um, and it is full of humanism, which we'll talk about what that is here shortly. Um, it's really a pagan anti-Christ worldview, and this is where he starts addressing them. And he talks about that this wrath is against the godlessness and the unrighteous people of God. Well, godlessness is when man offends, has offenses, when man's offenses are against God. That's godlessness. Unrighteousness is when man's offenses are against other people. And so what he's saying here is kind of paralleling with Jesus. Somebody asked Jesus one time, what's your greatest command? And he says to love God and love people. And this here, Paul is addressing this, that his wrath is going to come against people who are not doing the greatest commandments, who are not honoring and loving God, and who are not honoring and loving others. He also talks about how they suppress the truth. This takes action. If you are going to suppress the truth of God, that means that you actively have to do it. And in the, um, let's see, it says, I put in for verse 19, Paul assumes that this is deliberate disobedience since God has revealed himself to the world. So when people are not following Christ and disobeying, it is not because that they don't know and they're ignorant. It is because they have suppressed the truth because the truth is out there. God shouts it out in creation. The rabbis acknowledge the existence of an innate sense within every man to recognize that there is a supreme being. The Jewish New Testament commentary, which is helpful in the book of Romans, says, if you do not know God, it's not God's fault but yours. The characteristics of God that make his existence self-evident or his eternal power and his divine nature are known to you because God has made it plain to you. 
The psalmists have said that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Each day utters speech. Each night expresses knowledge. Basically, creation cries out for this. And in Psalms 14, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That is deliberate disobedience. You are choosing not to believe. It takes effort for sinners to ignore God. The This new commentary that I have um, that is it's a commentary on the Jewish roots of, of Romans says we are made in God's image and we embrace his nature in our own body. As a result, people are without excuse. There's no excuse. And the last quote that I want to read is man is accountable to God because God has given him the means to know him. A couple of thoughts on this. Um, the, the first and foremost is what is going on in Iran right now. There is a huge underground church that is exploding with numbers daily because God is just moving. And there are many reports of Muslim people who were trained and in, in brainwashed to hate Jesus. Jesus is appearing to them. So again, people are without excuse because Everything about the world and everything about how we are made screams that there is a creator God and you can find him if you want to. Um, Another um, thought that I had on this um, is years ago when I was in Bible school, we had someone come in and speak on witnessing, how to witness when Jehovah's Witness come come to your door. Now, I want to say this with grace and love. because if you are a Jehovah's Witness, I do believe that that is false teaching. And I am not here to convince you otherwise, but I do say just explore that. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to you. But um, that that is my personal belief, that it is one of the false teachings that Paul is warning about when he warns about false teachers. And so after the, the week-long um lessons that we had from a guest speaker, I came home for the weekend and I was up studying my Bible and everyone in the house was asleep. And sure enough, I get a knock on the door and it's this elderly couple and they are Jehovah's Witnesses. And I thought, what on earth? This is wild. And so there were a few things I could remember from the week on how to to question them back. And it usually all stemmed around questions about Jesus and when I started those questions, they got very mad. And immediately their kind, peaceful demeanor switched into anger. And I remember the man calling me a little girl and saying, listen here, little girl, what about the people that live halfway around the world in Africa and they never heard of the gospel? And at the time, I wish I would have known Romans chapter one, but at the time I didn't know how to combat that. So I just said, well, I guess I have work to do because it's the Christian's jobs to go out and spread the gospel. Which is true, but but here I can rest in the, the, the fact it is our job. We have to declare the gospel to others, but at the same time, alongside of us, creation cries out and people are without excuse. The last thing I want to mention is I, a couple of years ago, I was not a couple of years, I mean, probably within the past year, I was really listening to a documentary on secret societies and there was somebody who had come out of a secret society that was pretty high up and um, they worship a being that it's really the, the, it's called Luciferianism. It's basically they're worshiping Satan, but I guess it's Luciferianism. I don't know if they think that it's more bougie than Satanism, but, um, 
the, the man was saying that, that, that those secret society organizations almost scoff at the idea of atheism or being an atheist. They think that that is the most ludicrous, um, idiotic thing that you can do, that how, how you can believe because they too believe that creation cries out that there is a supernatural world out there. And I thought, wow, even people who are followers of evil and the dark side um, that are very powerful see this truth, that creation cries out. So we go in to verse 21, and he says, for though they know God, they did not glorify him or show gratitude. Okay, this was, um, it was, this is one of the things that I wanted to point out is that they had, we are called to honor God, to worship him and not images made. But I thought it was so interesting that he also threw show gratitude. I think we just take that for granted or we don't take the seriousness of gratitude. And I think didn't this summer I talked about complaining and the opposite of that is having a grateful heart. God puts a lot of power in gratitude. And so what happens is when they didn't do this, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds darkened. Again, the Jewish New Testament commentary said, once God is no longer in your thinking, your heart hardens and you are no longer discerning. So these people became, um, began worshiping image of created beings. And this is the rise of humanism. He is addressing Hellenism. He is addressing what is the prominent belief system of the Roman Empire in this passage talking about all these images. This is the rise of humanism where um, the philosophers rose up in this time and they believed that human reason was all. But apart from God's truth, human reason is nothing. Um, they, they elevated man. They stopped they even stopped worshiping the gods like they had been in the past. When I say the gods, the little g gods, and they started worshiping the human body in human form. Um, Pythagoras, a lot of people are familiar with him for his contribution to the Pythagorean theorem, theorem, but he said that man is the measure of all things. Man became God under this idea. And three times Paul is going to make this, use this phrase, God delivered them over. This is attached to the wrath that we talked about earlier. He says that God delivered them over the first time to the cravings of their heart. Well, this is dangerous, and this is why we can't go on human reason. I know so many people out there believe in following your heart. Well, Jeremiah 17 says, above all else, the heart is deceitful. And I'm saying that we must train and teach our hearts to line up with the truth of God's word. Daniel was a perfect example of this. We learn in Daniel chapter one that our Danny boy purposed in his heart not to defile himself. He was meditating on God's word. He was feeding himself spiritually daily. He was fasting so that he would not defile himself. He knew he couldn't do this on his own, but he purposed in his heart. He made a plan to fill his heart with the truth of God's word. When we don't have God's word anywhere in our lives, our heart will lead us astray. And so God delivered them over. He ends up saying this three times. And I told you I was already 
struggling or wrestling with this idea of what God's wrath is. And then I came across a, a dear friend of mine in um, one of my small groups introduced me to Ray Steadman, and she was so excited because he does a devotional where he breaks down a book of the Bible verse by verse throughout the month. And he said this, she said, this month is on Romans. So I didn't know really what I was looking for, but I just wanted to check it out. And immediately I came to this and I'm going to read it. And I know today is going long, but there's so much to unpack and it's hopefully y'all are getting some good nuggets out of this. But Ray says, many people think this account, now we're talking about the wrath and how God um, turned them, delivered them over to the cravings of their heart. Many people think this account describes all the evil things that men do, and then they believe it's saying that God washes his hands of evil because people are so filthy and dirty. But that's not what he's saying. Because men run after their own hearts and do not glorify or thank the true God, he removes his restraints from society. Isn't that free will? Okay, so it says he removes his restraints from society so that what is done in secret is allowed to break out into openness with acceptance. Do you see that that is what is happening in America now? There have been so many things done in secret and now it's out in the open and we are being forced to embrace and accept it. That is the mark of the wrath of God at work. The first sign, listen to this, the first sign of wickedness in a civilization is that sexual immorality becomes widely accepted. This started in the 60s. And think about in our day, people coming to church, people proclaiming to be Christians don't even know that there is an order for sexual relationships. Okay, going back to his quote, by God allowing sexual practices to become to come to the light, he is revealing the real and bigger issue. Okay, I wanna pause here. People tend to think that sexual sins are worse than other sins. God says that they are different because you are defiling the temple. Our body as believers are the temple of the Holy Spirit so that when we perform in sexual acts outside of a, a covenant marriage between a man and woman, we it, it is a different sin, but it's not worse. And he is saying that the real and bigger issue is that this, these sexual practices are exposing spiritual emptiness in the heart. And that is something that people cannot see. And so that makes it a more dangerous sin to deal with. Okay, I'm going back to his quote. We try to find fulfillment in sex, even though God warns us that we won't find fulfillment. <clears throat> he knows that we won't believe until we try it. So he removes the restraints and allows immoral sexual practices to become widely accepted, understanding that men indulging in these things will finally find themselves just as dissatisfied, empty, and hopeless as when they started, thus turning to God to find fulfillment. When I read this, I just sat there for a minute and processed it. And then I get shaken up because it's just the beautiful picture of God's grace. The perfect loving father that his wrath is got to be hard on his heart. What he's saying is, this is where your hearts are. So I'm going to just let you go. I wish as a father, I could just force you to stay in this boundary that I have set, but I'm going to let you go. And where you are going to go, it's going to be dangerous. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be hard. And you are going to be left more empty than ever before. But I have to let you go there because if you turn back to me, I will accept you. But now your heart will be changed. <sighs> 
The heart, the true brokenness in your life will be changed. It is the most beautiful display of grace that we can look at. I was talking to Newly about this, and as soon as I read him this, he said, that's the picture of the prodigal dad. If you're not familiar in the Gospels, Jesus tells a story about a son who asks his dad for his inheritance. And in that world, that was the most unhonorable thing that you could do. It was worthy of being disbanded and disowned from a family. And the prodigal's dad could have and had every right to say, absolutely not, and you're not even my son anymore. And, and, but he knew that wouldn't have done anything to his son's heart. His heart was hardened. And so what this prodigal dad did was he said, okay, here is your inheritance. And that boy took off and he ran into sin, just like what we're reading here. And he hit rock bottom and he was so miserable that he thought it would be better to be a slave on my dad's property than to live another day like this. So he returned home. But the beautiful picture in this parable is we see the dad on the roof of his house. And he's there in the evening and he sees his son in the distance. And as a parent, you know that it just didn't happen by happenstance that he happened to be up there on the same day. He was up there every day looking into the horizon, asking God when his son would return. And he sees his son and the scripture says that he ran, which if you know Jewish culture, these distinguished wealthy men did not run because of the, the things that they had to wear. It would have been undignified, but he doesn't care because his son is returning home and he runs to meet him. He is brought into the home, not as a slave, but as a son should be. And there is a celebration. And that is the picture of what God has done to mankind. He has allowed us to take our free will and to go and explore and to find on our own that we are nothing apart from God. And hopefully through that, God hopes that we'll return to him, but with a changed heart. Okay, closing up. He goes through some pretty sexual things. So I will say that at this point, if you have kids listening, um, you'll want to not, to not to play this right now because I'm going to address a few things in Roman society. We read this and we think, oh, wow, that sounds a lot like America. What is happening now? What is being played out in verses 26 through, through 32? Right in the Roman Empire, sexual perversion was out in the open much more than what we experience here in America, unless maybe you live in certain areas where that is common. But um, these un to the Jewish people, when they hear the word unnatural sexual relations, they they knew that to be found in Exodus. That was bestiality, and that was something practiced. And that it was also homosexuality in the law. Those were two things that they believed were unnatural sexual relations. They actually saw homosexuality as a Gentile sin. This is found in antiquity. Um, it wasn't really something that was prevalent among the Jewish people. And in this Jewish Roots of Romans commentary that I have, it says the Greco-Roman world manifested these sexual habits which Jewish literature attributed to idolatrous practices for the devising of idols was the beginning of fornication. This is what they believed that when idols were formed, that's when sexual promiscuity was. And I find that so interesting because I believe that there are spirit beings attached to idols and 
It is crazy to me that over and over again, no matter what culture you're in, they want sexual perversion to be the means of worship. So in Roman society, prostitution was a big part of the fertility cult worship. In fact, while Paul is writing this letter, he's in Corinth, and there's the Aphrodite temple there that's one of the largest in the known world, and they had a thousand sacred prostitutes that would perform sexual acts out in the open with people coming to worship. I can't imagine what that looked like. When I was traveling through Asia Minor, um, this was the Roman Empire, there would be plates, there would be cups, there would be tombstones that were decorated with orgies on tombstones, on plates and cups that people had. This was just out in the open. Um, in fact, Ephesus that we have studied and was one of the seven churches, they had brothels on every corner. The mystery religions from ancient times had gender-fluid gods that they worshipped. And one of the most um, hard, this is a hard pill to swallow, but what was very, very common in this Roman age was called Roman pederasty, P-E-D-E-R-A-S-T-Y. And it was the sexual relationship between an adult man and a pubescent boy. This was viewed as a spiritual or educational union in the Greek, but it became a pastime in the Roman Empire, and it became their civic duty. And at its core, it was seen as a mentorship. It wasn't really a love relationship, but it was the, the dominant man teaching the young protege how to grow up and become a dominant man so they would dominate them sexually. It was very popular in Greek mythology, and so this was something that they followed. And so you basically had pedophilia out in the open. You had temple prostitution and orgies out in the open, and you had brothels everywhere. This is what was going on, and this is what Paul was up against. And he had to bring clarity and correction to these new pagan converts. He ends up saying that this is going to turn people over to a debased mind, completely full of sin without God. And then to close, and I know this has gone long, but we have to address some things within our own heart. In verse 28, he says, And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over for the third time to a worthless mind and to all things morally wrong. They were filled with all unrighteousness evil, greed, and wickedness. They were full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossipers, slanders, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they full well knew God's sentence that those who practice such things will die, not only did they do them, but they applauded others who practiced them. We are headed to this Roman debased mind. Some things I want to mention in this list. It is non-comprehensive. He is just throwing out some sins. But you see here that there are some socially unacceptable sins paired up with socially acceptable. These are the sins that we've been desensitized to, and they're the most dangerous because we are desensitized. There are things that you and I struggle with, and to God, it is completely anti-Christ. Covetousness is when you have an itch for more. 
this is something that I think every single American struggles with. Gossipers, envy. Envy is what led Jesus to the cross. Pilate said that they knew they had handed him over due to their envy. Being proud, isn't that something that we, we all struggle with? Tearing other people down, exalting ourselves, quarrels, boastful, disobedient to parents. My goodness. Um, undeserving of being unmerciful. This is what Paul was pointing out, that we all fall short. The prophets of the Old Testament always called people to repent and return back to God. They knew this had to start with the heart of a person. The heart is so crucial to an individual. The Jewish people would tear their clothes to show an outward picture of what they were doing spiritually. They were tearing their heart when they were repenting. Their heart had to be torn. We must repent And when we do, God is gracious and compassionate to forgive us. John the Baptist, the New Testament prophet, continues with this message by proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. True repentance is going to always involve an awareness of our own sinless, helpless state. It takes hold of God's mercy in Jesus. It's a turning away from sin And not only an action change, but a heart change. And it's the true pursuit of walking in obedience with God. The more we feed our spirit and demand our flesh, the more we want to naturally do this. So let's examine our own hearts. Let's get right with God this semester. And as we draw near to him, may he transform our hearts and our minds. Next week, we will continue with chapter two. We will be addressing these godlier Gentiles who think that they have their act together, but they have some things that they need to to change and address too. I hope you stick with me. I hope this brought clarity. Have a great week and happy reading.